Well, if you know me, um, you, you, you know that the, the city of New York actually has a, a pretty special place in my heart. Over the past uh, 20 years or so, I've been able to attend many mission trips uh, to New York with one of our global partners, uh, Spread Truth. And, and, and so I've been out to that city. I, I tried to count. I, I, I can't count. Probably over 40 different times over the last couple of decades I've been out to New York City, and I love it. Uh, in fact, in 2003, before I was married, I had the opportunity to actually live out in uh, New York for the summer with a friend of mine while we just did ministry together. Uh, and, and I know many of you have been to New York on that trip many times as, as well over the, the years. Now, if you've been there, uh, you know that Bloomington Normal and New York City are two very different cities. And I'm sure you're thinking, yeah, I don't think I actually need to do a trip out there uh, to, to figure that out. That's probably pretty obvious. But one of the main, main differences that affected me when I was out there, especially when I was out there living there for a summer, was the fact that it's never quiet. It's never quiet in that city. No matter where you are, there's noise. There's distractions. You're going to hear the sounds of car horns blaring. You're going to hear the sounds of people talking and laughing and shouting. You're going to hear the sounds of music, the sounds of dogs barking, the sound of construction. No matter where you are, even if you are inside, doors closed, windows shut, you're going to still hear the sound of the city coming through the windows. Like, it is inescapable. However, I've also had the opportunity many times now over those years it's hard to believe we're coming up on the 22nd anniversary of the September 11th attacks, but I've had the opportunity on, on many occasions to visit the 9-11 memorial in lower Manhattan where those twin towers collapsed. And if you've ever been there, uh, it, it almost feels like you're in a different city because it's quiet. I would argue it's the only quiet place in all of New York. And that's because as soon as you step foot onto that property, you're being reminded of what took place on that day over two decades ago. As you walk around the memorial that's in the exact shape of the two towers uh, that, that once stood there, you're going to notice all the names that are engraved and etched into this metal frame that surrounds the memorial. Those are the names of the, the many people who lost their lives on that day. When, when you're there, um, nobody's goofing off. Nobody's being disrespectful. People's attitudes change in that moment while they're there because as they step onto that property, they're remembering something significant. And the significance of that past event is, is affecting how they're living now in that present moment. Uh, I'm taking a, a church history class right now in my seminary studies, and my professor a couple of weeks ago, as he was introducing the class to us, he said that the study of the past and the study of history are really two different things. He said the study of the past is, is just the study of historical events. Basically, what were they and when did they happen? He, it's like it's the learning of facts. But he said the study of, of history is the study of how those past events right, have affected us and how they have shaped us and how they've molded us to some degree into even who we are today as a people, as a culture, as a individuals, as civilization. When you think of that, all of us here are, are to some degree the sum total of our past. The decisions we make today, the way we often respond to stress and to trials and to suffering in our life are going to be often shaped by moments or even events that have happened in our past. So, for example, if you really struggle to, to trust people, right, if, you, if you struggle to trust people, to be open with people, to let people into your life, oftentimes 
you, you can discover that it's, it's connected to something in your past. You've been maybe hurt or wounded or betrayed by someone that you once trusted in your past. So, so what's taken place in your past is, is now affecting to some degree how you're living now in the present. And, and here's then the reality that all of us face here this morning. We can't go back and fix it. As awesome as it would be, I've heard one pastor say it this way, that there is no DeLorean with a flux capacitor that allows us to go back and undo some of those painful moments. And so the question becomes, okay, are, they, are we then forever destined, if I can use that word, to wrestle with these broken emotions in our lives and maybe broken emotions that we know are unhealthy, maybe just outright sinful, but, but we're like, but I know, I know I respond this way because of this, and this has happened, and how do I gain victory and freedom over this because I can't undo this, I can't, I can't erase this. Am I gonna forever struggle with worry and with fear and with anxiety and with anger and with doubt and with distrust because of how things have, in, in my past are affecting me today? See, Scripture is gonna lead us to say absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yes, there's, gonna be, there's junk in our lives, right? Can we admit that? There's junk in our lives. We can't escape it. There, there, there are always going to be things that we wish we could erase. But, but here's our hope that we're going to see in 61 today. There is one who we can run to who is greater and more powerful and more mighty and stronger than all of the sin and all of the shame that we so often carry with us from our past, which tries and seeks to condemn us. So the question we're going to come face to face with this morning from this psalm is is this, who are you running to to find freedom and salvation from all that seeks to condemn you? David cried out, lead me to the rock. Lead me to the rock that's higher than I. And so the question before us this morning is, what is the rock you're running to? See, we're all running to something. We're all running to someone to find help and to find that healing and to find that that protection, to find that salvation. What you're going to have to wrestle through is identifying what that rock is and then asking, okay, so is this rock, whatever it is I'm clinging to, to give me help and meaning and purpose and satisfaction and identity and, and, and purpose for my life, whatever it may be, is that rock, is it sufficient? Is it sufficient? Will it always come through? See, the psalmist is going to lead us to, to run to the rock of God where we find true help, true freedom where we find a safe refuge from all that's seeking to condemn us. See, if there was one overarching truth I could hang over the psalm this morning, it would be this, that though we are tempted to run to false saviors, because God has proven himself faithful, we can with confidence run to him time after time in our time of need. See, this psalm breaks down into three sections this morning to to prove this conclusion to be true that God must be the rock we run to with confidence. So three sections, three things I'm going to look at from the psalm to prove that conclusion of what I just said. Number one, notice David's need, which is leading him to what I titled faint-hearted desperation. So verse one begins like this. He says, hear my cry, O God, and listen to my prayer. So from the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. So the the language clearly denotes neediness. You can hear it in David's words. You can hear desperation for rescue. 
He's pleading with God, hear my cry. God, listen to my prayer, please. You can even start to see the the, the feeling, the emotion that he's working through. He's feeling distant from God in the moment. He says, from the end of the earth, I call to you. His heart is faint, meaning that he is without strength. He's weak. He's depleted. David clearly is in need and is is not only recognizing his his neediness, but he's also recognizing in that simple opening of his prayer of this psalm here that he is unable to fix it himself. Right? He's, He's saying, from the end of the earth, I call to you. Right? He's not saying from the end of the earth, uh, here's what I need to do. Right? Here's what I need to do. I need to, David, get your act together, right? You need to pick yourself up, dust yourself off. I need to make this change and then this change and then this change and then all things will be clear sailing from this point forward. That's not what he's saying. He's saying from the end of the earth, in my desperation, my heart is faint and weak. I'm calling to you. Now, I'm not denying human responsibility. We're called, Scripture would say, to train ourselves in godliness. We're called by Scripture to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But before we go looking inwardly, we must first look outwardly. We must first recognize that we are not our own Savior. And and the strength to even train ourselves in godliness comes from God. If I'm going to do anything, it's going to be through Him who gives me strength. And so David here is looking outward first. He's looking for a savior. He's looking for stability. He's looking for protection. He's looking for the salvation that he so desperately needs. And he knows that does not come from within. It comes from outside of himself. You see, you know, one of the lies that we, we believe as fallen human beings is the lie that we're strong, <laughs> that we're sufficient, Right, that we're in control. That is a lie we believe. Now, in most of our day-to-day lives, our, our, our typical daily routine is going to affirm that illusion that we, that we walk in, that life for probably maybe the vast majority of us in this room is fairly uneventful, which means that we can kind of control it. We kind of know what's coming. We have our calendar planned, our schedule set, right? We, we know the meetings we have and what to expect from most of those meetings. So it, it feeds into this illusion that, like, I, I, I've got this. My life is all packaged together, tied up with a nice little bow, and I've, I've got it. And so what I mean by the, the fact that we believe a lot of times this, this illusion because life kind of affirms this reality is that uh, most, most of us, our, our weeks are pretty typical, right? We, we wake up and we eat breakfast and we read and we wrestle to get the kids ready for school if you have them, right? If you're a student, you're getting ready for class, right? So you go to work, you go to class, you, you do that work, you come home, you eat, you do some laundry, you maybe clean the house, uh, you clean the apartment, you do some work, do some studying, you, you wrestle with the kids to get them to go to bed, then you collapse at the end of the day, exhausted in your bed, get as much sleep as you can to wake up and do it all over again. That's our life, right? That's, that's, our, that's our days. During our days, maybe there's maybe one or two things that happen maybe a little bit out of the norm, but for the most part, we can anticipate can expect what's going to happen on a day-by-day basis because it's become part of our routine. And so this, like I said, it begins to feed into this illusion. I've got this. I've got it all mapped out. I, I have my life plan put together. I'm in control of my life. I don't need help. We believe this, this lie that we're not dependent creatures. 
And yet God in his providence, God in his wisdom, I would say God in his grace, allows moments to take place in our lives which are meant to awaken us to a deeper reality that we are not in control, but in fact that we are extremely dependent and needy creatures. Some some moments that God allows are large, some are small, but all are useful to remind us that we need him if we have the eyes to see them. Let me give you a couple examples, one small, one a little bit larger. Um, A few years ago, I surprised uh, my wife Amy on her 40th birthday with Cubs spring training tickets. Right, which, which meant that we needed to fly out to Arizona for the, for the games and the little trip that we were going to take out there. Now, so before the plane takes off, you know you're sitting in there, and anytime I fly, I'm always a little on edge, right? Just a little on edge because when you're flying, you just, what's about to happen, right? We're going to go shooting down a runway and go out into the air 30,000-something feet, and you're like, I'm not, human beings are not supposed to be doing what we're about to do. Right? And so you're just a little bit on edge. So we're, we're sitting there, and the pilot comes over to the speaker, and he gives us a little speech. You know, I'm going to take it up here, and then we're going to do this and this. And I'm like, okay, you know. So taking this, here's what to expect. And he says, uh, but um, letting you all know, we're going to be flying over the mountains out west, and it, it's going to get bumpy. He's like, so I'm just letting you know ahead of time, it's going to get bumpy over the mountains. So I'm like, okay, I'm glad at least he told us, so he knew kind of what was coming. Uh, and he wasn't joking. Wasn't joking. Now, Plane's not out of control. We're not nose diving or dropping out of the sky. Like, it was nothing like that. But for about eh, 10, 15 minutes, as we're flying over the mountains out west, that plane was bouncing. It was bouncing. And it felt to me, as you're sitting there, like, are we sliding? It felt like we're sliding in the air at 30,000 plus feet. Now, that high up for me, that's not where I want to be just bouncing around, right? And then your mind starts to kind of mess with you and play tricks with you. So you just start thinking through as you're looking down at your feet at the ground. You're like, underneath my feet, there's just a little bit more plain and then a lot of air and mountains, right? Like, and you just start thinking, I'm, I shouldn't be up here. Like, I shouldn't be here in this moment. So, so what do we do in those moments if you're flying, right? We grip the armrests, right, tightly. It's all I could do in that moment for control, is grip the armrest. But when you think about it, listen, if that plane goes down, so are the armrests, right? Like they're going down with them. They're not going, they're not going to save me. But that's what we do. Like, okay, got to grip this for, for some type of control and safety. Now, now that's a small thing. It's a small thing. And those are gentle reminders of our, our needs. So in that moment, it's a reminder to me, listen, um, I am not immortal. I'm not sovereign. Right? There are things that we're doing here that the human being was not designed to do. Right? But, but let me give you something bigger. What about this? Just over three years ago now, the entire world shut down because of this unknown and new virus called COVID-19. Now, nobody knew really what to do with it. Right? Especially in those early, those early weeks. I remember in the first week or two when everyone was just sent home. Right? Everybody just go home. Don't go do anything. Everything's shut down. Everything's closed. And I remember walking around in my backyard in that first week or so and thinking, like, am I going to catch it just being outside? Like, there was so much confusion. I'm like, is it just floating in the air? Am I breathing this in? Like, you just didn't know. You remember th- those early days, that, that fear and that worry and the confusion that, that everyone experienced? Like, everything in the, those early days fell out of control. And it's why millions of people glued themselves to the daily press briefings every single day from those in leadership. Because we were just hoping, give us some answers. Give us some answers, give us a plan, give us some helpful information so we could once again find footing, find control. 
and looking for hope because we were desperate in those early days. Now, all of these things, those two things, and so many more like them that, that vary in all different types of sizes are moments, I believe, that God providentially allows us to encounter, to teach, and to reveal many things, but one of them is our need for him, that we are dependent, desperate creatures. Os Guinness, in his book, Signals of Transcendence, he, re- he refers to these moments as, as, as listening to the promptings of life. In doing so, he says, it it awakens us to see unseen realities. He's saying that God in his grace is constantly revealing these these moments before us to open our eyes to see him and to see how in need of him we are. It could be something as simple as just even just standing in your backyard, staring out into the starry sky and feeling for that moment just a, a brief sense of wonder and smallness. That's a prompting of life, calling on you to see yourself for who you really are and to see God for who he really is. It's, it's a way to awaken us out of this illusion that we're in control. And so many, myself included, live with this kind of theistic amnesia. Right? I wrote that, that, that phrase down. I don't know if it makes sense. It's what I thought of. But, but what I mean by that is like where we, where we ask God for help in the, maybe those moments but quickly forget him as the moment passes. So it's like, God help, God who? Like, it's, it's so often how we live. God help, God who? Right, but, but all of these moments do reveal our neediness. These moments which leave us faint-hearted are begging for us to look to what we see next in the psalm. And that is a, a longing for a dwelling place. Right, a longing for a dwelling place. A longing for home. Look at the, the next line in verse 2. It says, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. Jump down to verse 4. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. The NIV translates that verse as, I long to dwell in your tent forever. As a result of, of David's recognition of his neediness, there's now a, this transition into this longing in his heart for a, a dwelling place, for a home. He's understanding, I am in need, and I need a dwelling place. I need comfort. Now, now my study of this text this past week began in verse 4. It began with me asking this question. I wrote this question on my little notes. I said, why would anyone want to dwell in a tent forever? That's how I started it. Why a tent forever? I've, I've gone camping before. All right, not a fan, right? Like, I mean, I, I can handle a night, maybe two, but if I don't have to do two nights, let's do one and let's get home, right? Like, I'm ready to go home, sleep in my bed, right? It it, it seems to never really matter. When you go camping, it's always going to be hot. It's always going to be humid. It's always going to be dirty. You're going to be sticky, and wild animals are going to eat your food during the night, no matter how well you you secure it, right? That's camping, I think it was comedian Jim Gaffigan joking about camping and people who like to camp by saying, he's like, these people realize that houses have been invented, right? Like with air conditioning. Like why are we getting in these little canvas tents and going out into the woods? Like that makes no sense. So I just kept asking, why a tent forever? Why do you want to dwell in a tent forever? But this has nothing to do with a tent. It has nothing to do with camping, obviously. But here's what I believe is going on in David's heart. See, keep your fingers here in Psalm 61. I want you to head back a little bit to 2 Samuel chapter chapter 7. 
So keep your fingers, Psalm 61, turn back to 2 Samuel 7. As you're turning there, uh, a little context of 2 Samuel 7. We see God entering into a, a covenant with David. And so he's making a, a promise to David to, to bless him and his, his kingdom. But 2 Samuel chapter 7, it opens with, this, with David's desire to build a temple for, for God to dwell in. And, and you see in a few couple verses God's response back to David. So, so 2 Samuel 7, look at verses 2 through, uh, 2 through 6. And notice some of the similar language that's found here that we saw in Psalm 61. So it says in verse 2 that the king, that's David, said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Pause for just a second. Uh, David is saying, Listen, um, uh, the presence of God, which, which is, is residing in the, the ark of God, the ark and the covenant, which we, we saw in Exodus was uh, how God dwelt with his people. So they built the, the, the tabernacle, right? So it's made of a tent. You had the inner room, all that. And so, so David's like, I'm king. I'm living in this palace, right? That's amazing. And God's presence is dwelling in this tent. And so David goes to Nathan, the prophet, and says, I, I'm desiring, I want to build a temple for God, right? And, and Nathan says, Go, go do it, right? There's nothing wrong with David's desire, nothing wrong with David's heart in this moment. But what we see in the next few verses is God's response back to David. It says, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. It says, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. So, so David, like I said, has this desire to build the temple for God's presence to, to dwell in. God responds by saying, I don't need you to build a temple for me, David. Right? Since I brought you up out of slavery, the people of Israel, I've dwelt with you in a tent, which was the tabernacle. It's what we said, like I, see it, like I said, in Exodus. God's presence dwelt with them, specifically symbolized in the, the ark, which would reside in this innermost room, the holy of holies. This is how God dwelt amongst his people. So David, like I said, looks to this tent where God's presence is, right? And so recognizing this, knowing this, this is God's presence. He writes this psalm, Psalm 61, says, basically, God, I, I long to dwell in your tent forever. He's saying, wherever you are, if it's in a tent, that's where I want to be. Wherever you are, that's home. That's my, that's my eternal home, wherever you are. See, it's his neediness transition to this desire for longing in the presence of God. And he knew nothing else in all of creation would satisfy him. And so he says, lead me. Lead me to the rock that's higher than I. Take me there. That's where I want to dwell. That's where I find my safety. That's where I find my purpose. That's where I find my, sal my salvation. That's where I find my life. And I've seen it over and over and over and over again in my life. God, wherever you are, take me there. And out of this dwelling place with God, out of the recognition of his neediness, out of his looking back to God's covenant faithfulness, David finds peace and confidence in his day-to-day -day life. That's the last thing we see coming from this psalm, that for those who recognize their need, who, who in turn run to God, their rock of salvation, where it's there that they find protection and rest for their souls, they walk in this confident exaltation. That's what we see in the remaining verses, this confident exaltation. That's what we see here. Dave, David walked in confidence in Psalm 61, not arrogance, 
He's not walking arrogantly. Arrogance happens when someone is obsessed with themselves. But, but David's, David's not looking inwardly, is he? He's looking outward, right? He's looking upward. Knows the tone of David's language in, in verses 5 through 8. He's, he's confident in the Lord. In verse 5, he's holding fast to the promise of an unmovable, unchangeable God, right? You have given me the heritage, he says. Or another way to interpret that word is inheritance of those who fear your name. Now, I believe, I believe David is reflecting as he's writing this psalm. I believe he's reflecting back on the covenant that God entered into him with all the way back in 2 Samuel 7. I, I, I think that's the, in the forefront of his mind as he's writing this psalm. Now, I've studied through several commentaries this past week to see are, are there others that think this as, as well. I can only find one that alluded to it, and that, that was Jim Hamilton's commentary on the psalms. But the, the similarities, I just believe, are, are striking. See, hopefully you still have your finger in Psalm 61 and in 2 Samuel 7. But as you look in verse 5 in Psalm 61, David, again, states that God has given him the heritage of those who fear your name. I, I believe he's looking back here in this moment to this covenant promise that we see in 2 Samuel 7. Who are, who's this heritage? Who's this inheritance? Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see God say this to David. In verse 8, he says, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep. Remember, David was a shepherd before he was king. And so I, I took you from the pasture, fought from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. They're God's people, and, and, and God plucks David from the field and says, I'm gonna make you prince. I'm giving you this heritage here. In verses six and seven of Psalm 61, David calls on God to remember his promise that, that he made to him of, of giving him and his line an, an eternal kingdom. Right? Prolong the life of the king. May his ears be enthroned, he says, forever before God. He says, appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. Well, look at 2 Samuel 7, as I believe David's reflecting on the covenant promises of God. In verses 12 through 13, God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up, for your, up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. A few verses down, verse 15, he goes and says, and my steadfast love will not depart from him. And so I, as I believe David is looking back on the covenant faithfulness, remembering the faithfulness of God, the covenant that God promised him, as he's resting in his steadfast love, as he's holding fast to the faithful promises of, of God which never failed, David could then, as we see in verse eight, then joyfully spring out in worship when he says, so will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. As I live and breathe, knowing who you are, David says, I will confidently rest in you and exalt your name, worship your name above all others. In the day-to-day minutiae of life, remember, most of our days are fairly mundane, right? Fairly predictable, but even there, because as we reflect on what God has done and who he is, we, we find reason to praise him, to worship our great God for his steadfast love and unwavering faithfulness. There's been no greater visible expression of God's steadfast love and faithfulness for sinners than in the giving of Jesus Christ. David cried, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. David looked forward to the rock of the Messiah still to come. We now 2,000 years removed now 
look back with joy, right, to the rock who has come in the flesh. Jesus, fully God, fully man. Jesus, the cornerstone of the faith, the foundation upon which the, the, our eternal life is built. He's the rock. Jesus, who looked to, looked to Peter in Matthew 16 and asked him, Peter, who do you say that I am? To which Peter rightly declares, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus responds back to Peter and says, yes, you're right in declaring this confession, this belief of my divinity and messiahship. And that is the rock by which the church, the bride of Christ, will be built. Souls will be saved from eternal death through no other name than the name of Christ, the rock of our salvation, the rock of our testimony is the confession that Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings. The rock of our confidence is the gospel, which lovingly yet boldly declares that there is no salvation found in any other name outside the name of Christ. That hope, right, and eternal life is found through repentance of sin, through confession of sin with the mouth and the the belief of the heart and the mind of the lordship of Christ and believing that not only did he suffer and die for our sins, but that he was raised in victory over death itself. And if death itself could not conquer Jesus, then for those who belong to him, we can find our confidence in him. He is the rock of our salvation. Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you trusted in the true rock of salvation? I asked at the beginning this morning, what is the rock that you're running to? What is it? For many in this room, we're running to false saviors to save us. We're clinging to, to tiny little pebbles. We're clinging to armrests when the, when the mountain of Jesus is calling out to you. What are those false rocks in your life? Identify them. Name them. Confess them. Turn from them. And let me ask you this this morning as well. How do you respond typically to stressful situations? Stress, worry, and fear, and anxiety, and anger? How do you respond typically when stresses of life come? Because our response to those stresses and those trials typically actually reveal where our confidence actually is resting in. The result of hoping in false saviors is going to be fear and worry because we're going to eventually recognize that they are insufficient and that nothing outside of Christ is sufficient. The result of resting in the rock of Christ, though, is confidence. Confidence that though, though we don't know necessarily what lies ahead, confidence that though we know what will lie ahead is going to be difficult because life is difficult. Confidence, though, because we know we have a king, a king who reigns, a king who rules, a king who has conquered all, even death itself. That in Jesus, we have an identity as sons and daughters, an identity as children of God most high that we're loved and accepted through no work of our own, but through the finished work of Christ. What hope and peace there is in that truth. Do you believe it? Do you recognize your need? We are finite, dependent creatures made to find our dwelling, our rest, our peace in the presence of the God who has made us. What is the rock that you're running to to find that dwelling? What are the false saviors that you're tempted to run to rather than Christ? Like I said just a second ago, identify them, name them, confess them aloud. I would even say confess those sins to, to trusted brothers and sisters. 
This is what church community does. This is the purpose of the church, to protect and guard one another from drifting away from Christ. This is what church community is designed by God to do. Lastly, let me ask you, are you, are you walking confidently in the Lord? And notice how he said, in the Lord, right? Our, our confidence, as we said, is, is not a selfish swagger that we, that we walk in. Recognizing our neediness eliminates all arrogance and pride, doesn't it? It's hard to be cocky and arrogant when you recognize how needy you are. And so our, our confidence doesn't come from within anything that we produce, but it comes from what God has done and is producing in us and for us through the cross of Jesus. It was the Apostle Paul who says in Galatians 6, listen, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So he's saying there's nothing out there. There's nothing in this world which can save him. There's nothing out there. There's nothing in this world that's more beautiful than Jesus. The world in all of its shimmer and shine looks dead and decayed compared to the unspeakable riches of Christ's beauty and his glory. And so Paul's saying, if I'm going to boast in anything, it's going to be in the cross. The cross of Christ and what it has produced in him. New life, freedom, joy everlasting, salvation, a hope which never fades. See, this means then for the Christ follower, there is no average day. (laughs) There's no average day because every day is a miraculous testimony of God's saving grace in your life. So as you sit in class, as you get those kids ready for school, as you work, as you study, as you eat, as you laugh, as you play, as you cry, as we live and breathe and as we move, we do so confidently resting in the glorious hope of Christ, our rock and our redeemer. All glory belongs to him. Let's pray.